Good morning, Disciples Church. Would you please stand for today's scripture reading? Uh, it comes from 1 Peter 3, 17 through 22. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good morning. It is good to see you. I'm so glad that you're here today. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it is my privilege and honor to get to open up the Word of God with you today, and so if you have your Bibles with you, if you could please turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Well, if you've been with us over the last several weeks, what you know is that we've worked our way through several pretty challenging ideas, particularly geared around the idea of what it is to submit in the various uh, areas in which, in which God has placed authorities in our lives. And there are texts that we work through as believers where they're difficult simply because of what they ask of us. They're challenging just because of the, the, the instruction that they put in front of us. But there are other texts that can be difficult because we just don't know what they mean. And today is one of those texts that can be incredibly challenging and incredibly difficult. And so I did what I often do when I come to texts like this. I I look at what uh, commentators and particularly some of the particular heroes of the faith that I have have had to say about these passages. And so one of the people that I looked at this week was Martin Luther. He's the great reformer. He's one of my personal heroes. And here is what Luther said about this text. This is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. And so my encouragement to you today is if you leave here confused or with a differing opinion, you are in good company because this is a text that has thrown believers off since it has been written most likely. It's certainly something that in our day, some 2,000 years removed from its writing can be challenging for us, but we're going to do our best to muddle our way through a, a passage that can be so difficult to understand and yet I think is so rich with meaning, so powerful in terms of what it communicates, and so we'll do our best to work through it today. But we're going to begin by looking at verse 17, and if you were with us last week, you actually heard us read this verse last week. It's kind of a connecting verse between where we were and where we're going today, and this is where Peter gives us a lead-in into this difficult text. Here's what he says, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, we covered this exact same idea about three weeks ago, that Jesus is not going to ask you to do something in your Christian life that he was not willing to do himself, that Jesus himself went through unbelievable suffering and persecution, ultimately murder, at the hands of those whom he was coming to save. And in the very same way now, the call has been extended to us as believers, even 2,000 years removed, to be willing to endure suffering, to endure hardship, to go through the difficulties and the challenges of life 
whether it's the everyday difficulties that we face or persecution as a direct result of our faith, that part of what motivates us in our lives is understanding that Jesus himself suffered for doing what was right. But Peter is going to use this idea now to launch into an excursus about what it was that Christ actually accomplished. He wants to remind us of really what the essence of the gospel is. What is it that Jesus did in his suffering and in his death? And the question that we need to ask ourselves whenever we come to passages of Scripture like this, as those who want to be faithful to the text and want to learn how to read Scripture and understand it for ourselves, we need to ask ourselves why in all of the places that Peter could address this idea does he choose to do it here? He's talked about the gospel in chapter 1. He's addressed it certainly in various elements in chapter 2. Why does he go into this explicit statement of the gospel now in verse 18, as he's going to unpack for us in a second? Why does he choose this moment to go into this particular excursus? My idea on this, or my thought on it is this, because in the death of Jesus Christ, we as believers see the ultimate example of what it is that God can accomplish through the experience of suffering. If ever anything communicated God's ability to take what man intended for evil and the suffering that people go through in their life and to turn it into something good, it's exemplified most in what Jesus Christ actually accomplished on the cross. So now, for you and I, to the extent that you wrestle with wondering what God could possibly do with the hardships that you're experiencing in life, to the extent where you're wondering how could God possibly make something good come out of what seems to me to be a very bad thing, you can rest in the knowledge that God sees the whole eternal picture. David addresses this idea in Psalm 139, verse 13, where he says this, For you, God, you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. In other words, every day that brings along, brings along its own challenges and its own unique difficulties and its own suffering and its own hardships and its confusions and its anxieties and its worries, every day that comes as a unique surprise to us is by no means a surprise to God. He's not thrown off by it. He's not confused by it. He's not He's not dismayed by it. In His sovereign goodness, He has permitted things to enter into our lives for His glory and for our joy. And that ultimately is what leads Peter then into verse 18 where he says this, for Christ, here's the explanation for why we ought to be willing to suffer even for doing good, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, Peter here packs a ton of truth into this verse. I mean, this could be its own sermon series just in verse 18, but we're going to try to cover it here this morning. And he starts with this declaration, and I think it's worth us taking the time to unpack together. He says this, Christ suffered once for sins. And the idea behind that is that Christ suffered once for all time, for all sin. In other words, Jesus' sacrifice was utterly and completely effectual to cover every sin that you ever have or ever will commit. 
There is nothing that remains to be done, either on your part or on his, for you to have forgiveness and right standing before him. And I say that to you if you're a believer in this room today. That's the assurance and the promise that's given to you. There is nothing that God is waiting for you to accomplish or waiting for you to do in order forgiveness to be extended. Forgiveness has already been extended at the cross. Everything that was necessary for your sin to be paid for completely and washed away entirely and to receive absolute forgiveness and acceptance in the sight of God was finished at the cross. In his death and in his resurrection, all the work was finished. And we talk about this all the time. If you're around here, these are not new ideas for you. But here's the truth of the matter. As you read through the New Testament, you find this truth being repeated over and over and over and over again. And and again, we have to ask ourselves, why? Why does Peter spend all of this time talking about it when he already addressed it in chapter 1? Why does Paul spend the whole book of Romans and the whole book of Galatians addressing these same ideas when they've already been communicated elsewhere? And the reason, at least in part, is this. We are feeble and fragile creatures who are quick and prone to forget. We do not believe always the things that we claim to believe, and we quickly forget that which we declare. And if you want to read a longer excursus on what Peter says in verse 18, I would encourage you on your own time to read the whole of Hebrews chapter 10. Because the author of Hebrews spends the whole chapter addressing this idea. I'm going to read from you a little bit about what what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 11. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. He says, as you go to the temple, brothers and sisters, every, every day the priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus sat down. And when the author of Hebrews states that, and it's the same thing that Peter states in in chapter 3 of this text this morning, what he's saying is this. Again, everything that needed to be done has been done, and I think we struggle to believe that. We might believe it intellectually. We might be even able to share that truth with other people, but practically in our day-to-day, as we struggle in our lives, particularly as we struggle with sins, and even more particularly yet, as we struggle with sins that have forever been our Achilles heel, we tend not to believe that Jesus' sacrifice was that sufficient. And here's how you know if you actually believe it. When you find yourself in a moment of sin, do you run to God or do you run away from Him? When you find yourself having sinned, do you run to Him or away from Him? A sign of spiritual maturity, a sign of understanding this once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ is when you are so confident in the finished work of Jesus Christ that immediately upon sinning, you run to Him in confession and dependence. And likewise, a sign that you actually don't believe in the effectiveness of His sacrifice is when you step away when you think that you need to be alone for a while, where you need to send yourself on a guilt trip, where you need to self-flagellate and sit and wallow in your guilt and your shame, where you need to suffer and feel bad in order to really demonstrate to God that you're sincere about your confession, when you beat yourself up and you sit in your guilt as penance for wrong behavior. And when we do that, we are acting 
as if we have to get the work started in order for Jesus to finish it in our lives. I've got to really show him I'm serious, and maybe if I do that, he'll actually extend forgiveness to me yet again. But I want to read to you something that I came across this week from an author named Paul Tripp. Here's what he says. Your bills were fully and completely paid in the single payment on the cross of Jesus Christ. Christ did not make the first payment on your moral mortgage. He paid your entire moral mortgage in one single payment so that you could live in a relationship to God debt-free forever. God's law is not your payment plan because there is no payment plan when the demands of a mortgage have been satisfied once and forever in one single payment. And so why is it then that we assume each time we fail, each time we struggle, each time we sin, why is it we assume that God withdraws from us and therefore we must withdraw from Him in order to demonstrate our own sincerity? Well, the reason that we assume that is because most often this is how our human relationships work. And think about it within the context of your own life, maybe your marriage or your relationship with your kids or your parents or or friends in your life. I mean, this is most often how things work. When people sin against us, we may forgive them without hesitation the first time. Of course I forgive you. You hardly even needed to ask for forgiveness. That's how much I wanted to extend forgiveness to you. But when someone comes back to you for a second, third, fourth, fifth, hundredth time, and confesses and asks forgiveness once again, we start to qualify our forgiveness of them. Because we start to think, hey, if you really meant it last time, your behavior would look different now. See, we talk often about the idea of forgive and forget, but the reality is none of us are capable of that. Only God himself is capable of fully forgiving and fully forgetting. And that's what the author of Hebrews continues with in verse 14 of chapter 10 when he says this, for by a single offering, again, there's that idea that Peter talks about, for by a single offering, he, that is Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So just stop for a moment and think about that. Here's what he's saying. You are in the process of being sanctified. Your mind is in the process of being transformed. Your heart and your affections and your loves are in the process of being reformed and transformed and changed daily. But do you realize what he just said is already happening about you if you're being sanctified? You have been perfected, past tense. You have already been made perfect in the sight of God even as you grow into more and more of a reflection of your relationship with him. Now, that's an amazing declaration in and of itself, but he doesn't stop there. He continues in verse 15, and he says, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us For after saying that, he says this in verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. That once forgiveness has been extended by the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to you, there is no more offering that needs to be made. Everything is done. So understand what that means. You are just as forgiven and just as secure and just as loved the moment after you sin as you were the moment before. But I'll confess I struggle to believe that. 
because this relationship that we have with God is so different than the relationship that we have with people. But the promise of that text, to paraphrase one theologian, is this, that the sins that we seem unable to forget are the same sins that God refuses to remember. The sins that we just can't seem to shake, the guilt that continues to rack our own souls and our own minds for the things that we've done wrong are the things that God is saying to you, I will not remember them. I refuse to remember them because Christ's sacrifice was so sufficient on your behalf. So let me ask you a question that blew me away the first time that I heard it. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, how many of your sins had you committed yet? And the answer, of course, is, well, none of them. I wasn't even around yet to have committed my sin. All of my sins were future. Yet Christ died on the cross to pay for sins you had yet to commit which means Jesus knew how often you would struggle and he knew how often you would fail and he knew how often you would fall short and he knew how often you would repeat the same sins and he knew the way that your heart would fail you and he still went to the cross. And so perfect was his work on the cross that when he was finished, he said, that's it for all time. Nothing else needs to be done. I'm sitting down. And since I now and you now are assured of his love and his forgiveness, when I fail, I don't need to sheepishly and standoffishly stare at my feet to show my sincerity to God, but I can confess boldly. So in 1521, Martin Luther wrote a letter to his friend Philip Melanchthon, and in it he said this, If you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary, but the true mercy. If the mercy that you preach is true, you must therefore bear a true, not an imaginary, sin. God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. Be a sinner and sin boldly. But let your trust in Christ be stronger. And rejoice in Christ, who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. We will commit sins while we, are, while we are here, for this life is not a place where justice resides. We, however, are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where justice will reign. It suffices that through God's glory we have recognized the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. No sin can separate us from Him, even if we were to kill or to commit adultery thousands of times each day. Do you think an exalted lamb paid merely a small price with a meager sacrifice for our sins? Pray hard, for you are quite a sinner. Now, Luther has an amazing ability to speak with overstatement, but he does it for purpose. And the purpose that he's drawing out here is not that we ought to indulge in sin just because there is grace. Far from it. That's not what he's suggesting at all. But what he's saying is this. Our view of what Jesus Christ accomplished is far too small. We view his work as meager, as insufficient, as lacking, as incomplete, and therefore as needing a little bit of help or needing a little bit extra. 
And so what Luther says is that our tendency is to soft sell our sin, to speak lightly of our sin, to view our sin as more significant than Jesus' sacrifice. And he's suggesting that in turn, we must fully own and recognize our sin in order to fully comprehend the magnitude and the wonder of God's grace. So when we go, to, when we go sin and we come to God to confess our sin, we don't now come wondering if this is going to be the time where we've gone too far. We can confess boldly because we know that the judgment for sin has been paid once for all by Jesus. And then he says, Peter says, that this judgment for sin was made the righteous for the unrighteous. And so the theological term for that is penal substitutionary atonement, right? It's this idea that I needed someone to stand in my place to take the penalty I deserved and to give me the innocence that belonged to them. And he did this, according to Peter, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. That when Jesus was on the cross, all my rebellion, all my pride, all my failure, all my sin was laid on him. And every drop, every drop of the wrath of God that was reserved for me was laid fully onto him. And as Christ experienced the punishment and the torment and the wrath of the Father on my behalf, the Spirit then applied all of his righteousness, all of his obedience, all of his perfection to me, and made me completely acceptable to God. So that when God the Father looks at me or looks at you, he doesn't see a failure and he doesn't see a screw-up. He sees his own Son. Likewise now, even as we experience suffering to the point of death, says Peter, persecution in the case of these Christians, we can be assured that we are being made alive in the Spirit, that the temporary suffering of this world is now being turned into your eternal benefit. Now, this is where Peter shifts his conversation, and he's trying to illustrate this idea, and so he says this beginning in verse 19. He says, in which, speaking of Christ's suffering and Christ's death, in which he, that is Jesus, went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. What in the world is he talking about? Everything made sense till just about right now. And he's given us this amazing gospel excursus, and then he starts talking about Noah and spirits in prison and baptism, and it all seems rather unhinged from the point. I'll be honest with you, there are all sorts of theories about what this text means, and on your own time, if you want, you can begin to look into them. They are legion. As many commentators as I looked at this week had had different opinions, and even some of the commentators said, here's one of six different things that I think it could mean, right? So there's not a lot of clarity about exactly what it is that Peter is trying to communicate here, but the argument that I personally find most compelling and that I think aligns well with the broader text of 1 Peter and this chapter in particular is that the people in this particular region of the world to whom Peter is writing 
had a great understanding of the life and story of Noah. Now, that's significant for a whole lot of reasons, but here's what one scholar said. Noah was the most prominently known biblical figure in Asia Minor, even among the Gentiles at this time. And this comes from a whole bunch of things that I won't go into, but really briefly what it means is this, that one of the cities to which Peter is writing had as its, uh, as its city name the word Ark. And the idea is that the local people that lived there had some sense or another that perhaps the place in which we lived was the place where Noah's Ark had ultimately landed. Whether or not that was the actual location of the landing of the Ark doesn't really matter because to these people it had kind of become folk religion. And they had their own flood stories. They knew about Noah, maybe disconnected from the Bible story altogether, but they knew about Noah. They knew about the account of the flood, and they held in reverence Noah and his family to the point where the Romans had actually imprinted uh, various coinage that had Noah and his wife pictured on their coins, a series of Roman coins that actually pictured Noah. That was something new I found out this week. But the point is this, that the people in this region, they knew about Noah. They knew about the stories that were related to him. And so Peter here brings Noah into this conversation to illustrate the truth of what it was that he was declaring. He was trying to connect Christ's victory on the cross to to the Noahic tradition in a place where people actually understood who Noah was. In other words, Peter here is just trying to use an illustration for his readers. The flood narrative was so famous and so widespread in this particular region of the world that it had spread far beyond the boundaries of the Jews and the Christian communities into broader culture. And as such, Peter is looking for a way to talk about Christ's victory in death, and he illustrates it by pointing to the story of Noah. So when Peter says, in the time when Christ died, he's talking here about the time between his death and his resurrection, and then he says this, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now that language has meant all kinds of different things to different people. Some people have claimed that this was, that this was actually Jesus speaking through the mouth of Noah at the time of Noah's proclamation of the coming wrath of God uh, on the sin of the world. Other people claim that Jesus actually spiritually went into the bowels of the earth, went into Hades, this kind of judgmental, uh, this, this kind of place of judgment prior to hell, giving people an opportunity to confess after their death. I don't think there's any evidence or reason to believe that scripture it certainly doesn't align with anything else we read in Scripture. So what in the world does this actually mean, and what does it have to do with Noah? Well, here's my best shot at it. I think we find a clue in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. Hebrews 11, verse 7 says this, and you'll remember that this is the, the hall of fame of faith, as it's been called, right? By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By doing this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So the question is this, how does Noah, obeying God and building an ark, condemn the world and make him an inheritor of righteousness? Well, here's here's the answer. In entrusting himself to the will of God, and enduring the scorn and the ridicule and the, per- and the persecution of the world around him, Noah was proclaiming a message. He was declaring to everybody who saw him working on that ark and to everybody who had listened to his preaching, he was declaring to them that salvation could only be found in the one true God. 
He was declaring to them, both in his word and his deed, that to reject God was to find yourself as the object of God's wrath. Now take that notion and apply it to Jesus. Jesus, likewise, entrusted himself to the will of the Father. And his obedience to the instruction of the Father led to him being scorned and ridiculed and persecuted and killed. And to the world around him, it looked as if Jesus' life had been a waste. And it looked as if the message that Jesus had proclaimed had been false. How could the Messiah be dead? But in the very moment of seeming defeat, says Peter, Jesus was actually proclaiming his victory to the spiritual realm. That Jesus' death and resurrection was a pronouncement of victory to the saints and the angels, and it was a pronouncement of defeat to the demonic forces. And so Peter takes this analogy about Noah and says, remember, in the context to these suffering Christians, do you understand brother and sister who are suffering, who are being persecuted at the hands of an unbelieving world just like Noah? Do you understand that the very thing that was flooding and destroying life outside the ark was keeping the ark afloat and its occupants alive? Do you understand, suffering brother and sister, that that the very thing that led to the suffering of Jesus, the very thing that would lead to his death, is what brought eternal life to you and eternal glory to him. And he takes all of this then to encourage suffering Christians, saying, do you understand that you then can go through the suffering of this life and be absolutely confident in God's deliverance and sovereignty? In other words, Peter is saying to these Christians, the very same God who delivered Noah and the very same God who glorified Christ will deliver and glorify you. And then Peter, in order to tie all of this together, says that we actually have this symbol present in baptism. He illustrates all of this picture by pointing to the baptism of the believer, and he says this, when you go through the baptismal waters, it's representative, according to Romans chapter 6, of death and life. That when you are lowered beneath the water, what is being pictured is the death of the old flesh. That the old, rebellious, defiant, condemned you has died. And just at the point when you were lowest in that water, you were brought back up, raised in newness of life. Peter says, in this way, you were saved through baptism. Now, he doesn't want us to be confused, and this will be confusing for people inevitably. He is not here suggesting that baptism itself provides your eternal salvation. Well, why do I say that? Look at verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for what? A good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, there is nothing inherently about going through the waters that provides salvation, but rather your baptism serves as an appeal to God for a clean conscience. Here's what he means. He means that 
He means that a piece of your baptism, not the whole of your baptism, but a piece of it at least, is an appeal to God to continue to live utterly dependent on the all-sufficient grace of Jesus Christ provided by the new life that is granted in his resurrection. You have to tie together all of these ideas to see how they fit. Now, you might be wondering how it's possible that these verses can actually mean anything to you. Because if you're like me and you're trying to follow the train of thought that Peter lays out here, it is admittedly confusing. And we have to understand the difficult and unclear pieces of Scripture by the clear pieces of Scripture. It's a basic rule of interpretation. When we come across things that are hard to understand, we look at other parts of Scripture that are very clear to make sure we're understanding them correctly. So what in the world does this actually benefit me? How is this profitable to me as anything other than an intellectual exercise? Well, here's the two ideas I'll suggest. The first one is this. What this text is promising us is that we can be confident that Jesus wins even in our suffering. Even at the moment where it seems like defeat has been handed down, we are assured of victory. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It's easy for us to look at this life, to experience our own personal difficulty, to look at the world around us, and to grow more and more and more disillusioned, to grow less and less hopeful about our future. We have a tendency, all of us, to look at evil in the world or what, or what we perceive as a trajectory of decline in our culture and to grow more and more fatalistic about it. Let's batten down the hatches. Let's hold off hope. Let's just try to get to the finish line because everything's going to hell in a handbasket. But the image that we're shown in this passage is that of Jesus Christ on the cross. And imagine how it must have been as a follower of Jesus to stand at the foot of Golgotha that day and to look up and to see the Savior, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Suffering Lamb, the Suffering Servant, dead on a cross. And Peter himself experienced this. He had denied Christ he had looked up and seen the one that he had hoped to worship as the Messiah, the one whom he thought had the fate of the world in his hands, the Savior, the hope of mankind. Peter saw as Jesus hung on the cross dead. And you can imagine the heartbreak and and the sadness and the hopelessness and the fear and the worry and the confusion that must have gone through Peter's mind and heart in that moment. How is it that the Savior could be dead? How is it possible that we have any hope at all? But the promise of this text is that in that moment when the world seemed most hopeless, it was in that very same moment that Jesus himself was proclaiming in the spiritual realm his victory. Just as it had appeared that Satan had won, Jesus turns the script everything is flipped upside down. 
And what Satan intended for the defeat of the Savior and for the defeat of God was actually the very means by which Jesus secured our future hope, our eternal salvation, our identity as sons and daughters. That the suffering in this world, through the midst of all of it, we can be confident that Jesus wins. But second, not only can we be confident that Jesus wins even in our suffering, but we can be confident that God has supreme authority over every other power. Over every other power. And look what he says, the guarantee in verse 22. He says this, that all angels and authorities and powers have been subjected. That means put in their rightful place a subordinate position below Jesus Christ. What the devil intends for evil and what broken and wicked people intend for evil, God has a unique way of redeeming for his own glory and for our own joy. And so the hope of this obscure and confusing text, and it is both, the hope of this confusing and obscure text is that God does not intend for you to live defeated and despondent. He does not intend for you to live as a fatalist, as one who has no hope. The whole point of this book is to remind you of the living hope that you've been given. And he intends you to live confident and hopeful even through the difficulty of life. Whether that's difficulty or suffering in your own personal life, relational, physical, emotional, psychological, whether it's persecution at the hands of other people or at the hands of a government, whether it's spiritual as you struggle with the guilt and the shame of your own actions, Everything about this text is pointing you to the idea that what you have experienced is not on accident. That God has not wasted your suffering. And that everything you experience in this life will be undone in glory. And undone, by the way, doesn't just mean forgotten. It means turned for your good. So brother and sister, would you be willing to surrender everything to Jesus. Whatever sense of control you have over your own life, whatever fears and anxieties you have, whatever guilt and shame you have, are you willing to trust in the goodness of this kind of God? Or is your picture of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ too weak? where you can't imagine that anything God could do for you is good enough to overcome the suffering that you're experiencing? Would you be willing to trust in the goodness of a Savior that loves you to this extent, even when that goodness is obscured by the pain of this life? See, Jesus' point is not to pretend your suffering doesn't exist, but to meet you right in the middle of it to hold your hand through it, to be with you when it feels like all others have abandoned you, and when you feel like hope is gone, would you be reminded of this truth? Be encouraged today. Let's pray.
God, we thank you for texts that challenge not only our preconceived notions and not only our basic understandings, but, but challenges intellectually, that challenge us spiritually, that challenge the very basics of what we think we understand about your word. And God, we come to you this morning admitting that this is a hard text. And God, admitting that, that individually or collectively, we may or may not come to a right understanding of this text. But God, what we, what we want to claim is not that which we may or may not understand, but that which we know without doubt. And what we know without doubt in this morning is what's declared for us in verse 18. That you lived and died and were resurrected for us, the righteous for the unrighteous. That your sacrifice was once for all. And that in physical death, spiritual life was guaranteed. And so, God, we plead that to you today, trusting that no matter what it is we have faced or will face in this life, we have the promise and the guarantee of a future and eternal life with you. And God, the hope for that is not in just some mere, some mere ideal where we're encouraged to buck up in this life, but God, it's been exemplified for us through what Jesus Christ experienced that you made not only the down payment for our moral mortgage, but that you paid it off entirely so that we can live free and forgiven and accepted regardless of what happens. God, I pray that you would use this text in our lives. And I pray, God, that to the extent that we wrestle with these words this morning, and we should and ought wrestle with them, I pray that throughout the course of this week, you would teach us what it is that you would have us to learn. So God, we trust you with the things we don't understand. And we praise you for the things that you've made clear to us. And we pray, God, that we would be willing to submit everything to you. And it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.